Welcome to the International Bus Podcast brought to you by Wordbee. I'm your co-host, Tanya Falkner. And I'm your co-host, Robert Rogi. And in today's episode, we're going to talk with Gabriel Karandijovsky. Gabriel is a writer, researcher, editor, and project manager. He's passionate about languages, communication, culture, and everything that comes with it. Gabriel is currently putting his talent to work at Nimsy Insights, where he's the lead researcher for Project Underwear, which is what we're going to talk about today. Welcome to the show, Gabriel. It's great to have you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to join, be joining you here today. Thank you. Cool. So uh, why don't we just get started? Why don't you tell us like what is Project Underwear and why is it called Project Underwear? <laughs> right. So it's a it's a research project. It's a study and a global study at that of online behavior of users and how language affects their choices when when they are browsing the web and when they are shopping online. That's the short answer, I think. And why it's called Project Underwear? Well, we, we like graphical depictions here at NIMSI. Uh, that's I think part of our DNA. But it's really a name that is a continuation of a concept developed by NIMSI's co-founder and CEO Renato Beninato uh, that he called the underwear effect, uh, which uh, denotes situations where we as individuals are making decisions in our native language. So let's say when we are at our most personal and wearing nothing but our underwear and we, we slam our toe against the table, we curse in our native tongue, our native language. So that is really a well-known concept that uh, Renato has been talking about. And that was really the, the starting point of the, of the whole study. And that's why it's, it's really called Project Underwear. Cool. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about your most important findings of the report and how you conducted the mm -hmm. research? Mm -hmm. Right. So um, I guess the most, there are two or three really key takeaways there for me personally, and I hope for all of the readers and whoever checked it out, that is nine users out of 10 ignore a product if it's not in their native language. And that was the, that was the strongest finding that, that we uncovered. Another one was that language ultimately drives user engagement. Another figure would be that 91% of users globally uh, would be interested in learning more about a company's product or service if they understood uh, what it what it meant and by that meaning it's in their native language so that's a that's another another key key takeaway there for us i think so those yeah those are really the two standout standout pieces of information now when it comes to the um, to the methodology it's a combination of different different aspects really it's gathering quantitative data via survey, which we had. We had 25 questions, which were translated into 66 different languages. And uh, we, we had that survey going in 74 countries. And then it was also working with in-country specialists to gather this data, so researchers really. And then we vetted some of the findings with them like to get the more, I would say, qualitative insights whether our findings matched what is the reality. So it was a combination of different different uh, approaches, really. I have uh, several questions that once in my mind. 
the sure. I, I guess one question, just as long as we're on the topic of methodology, would be like, what is the margin of error for some of these numbers? Because like we're looking at, I, I believe it's the preview version of the report, and uh, it doesn't say any anything. I, I don't think about um, margin of error, but like, what is the margin of error on some of this stuff, more or less? Mm-hmm. Our confidence score is uh, about five percent, right? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The samples were were qualified uh, to an extent. Um, we were looking at a broad spectrum of age groups above 18 years of age. So the assumption was uh, people who can make decisions on, on whether they buy products. Also, um, when it comes to gender, so having a having a fairly evenly split quota between the different genders. So yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, that's interesting to know. Five percent is pretty good. At the same time, something that comes to mind and, and a caveat to, to all of the findings and something I've, I've seen people asking about is, this is really general data. So it's not product or service specific. Um, and that's a, I think that's an important disclaimer to, to make that depending on the individual companies and what their products or services are, the responses might be different. But as you can imagine, it was quite impossible for us to encompass all different varieties of products and services and ask questions about that. So, I mean, we would still probably be doing that study. So this was really regardless of what the product is and sort mm-hmm. of canvassing, canvassing people's feelings and how they behave in, in, a, in a general way, so to speak. Right. Mm-hmm. You do talk in the report about you kind of differentiate a little bit between online businesses and uh, brick and mortar businesses. Mm-hmm. So... What were the different findings there when it comes to language and buying behavior? I think the scope for us was really uh, online. And that being said, we wanted to, one of the things we wanted to verify was whether online is really becoming a thing because everyone is talking about it, but uh, there's not too much data around that. So the takeaway there is that physical stores are still very much a thing. So the, we didn't necessarily have follow-up questions when it comes to how users behave in, in physical stores or brick-and-mortar shops, and the focus was really on the online. But the conclusion for us there was that the physical shops are not going away anytime soon. And if you think about it, the online storefronts cannot replicate the, the experiences of going into shops. So there's a, there's a large segment of the population which still prefers shopping physically. So our takeaways from the report are really centered around the online behavior and how people interact with online storefronts. Was, um, like, like you mentioned earlier, the caveat that none of this was like product specific. I guess the question I have there is that there's a part of the report where it it just has a very, a very nice and easy to read graph that says I buy online or I buy in stores. Was that like a binary choice that, that your survey respondents had or? Well, they had the, the, it was, it was actually a multiple uh, choice question. So they they could indicate, of course, there were people who indicated uh, both. We had a third option there, which is street vendors, because in a lot of countries, Mm. that's still very much a thing. So my favorite countries. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a lot of, a lot of the Asian countries and and some of the European ones as well. Of course, it, it all comes down to what are we buying, right? So Depending on what it is, we use different uh, mediums, whether 
you know, whether we go into a physical store or we shop online or we, we buy flowers from a street vendor, right, for our significant other. So that's another conclusion. It all depends on what you are buying, how you behave. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, another thing that, of course, we can't ignore and neither did you in the report is the effect of COVID-19. How did you find that it affects buying behavior? Right. So interestingly, the, the, the study, we kicked it off before COVID was even you know, uh, happening. So we certainly did not foresee that, that coming up. But then we thought, look, well, this is certainly highly relevant right now to understand how, how people behave and whether there's any kind of change. And, and, and there was. So one of, the, one of the very early assumptions was that with the lockdowns coming into effect in, in a slew of countries, that people would be spending more time online and buying more online. And, and that, that certainly proved to be a case in a number of industries. Uh, the example we're referencing in the reports is, is the video game sector. Uh, with a lot of people having time on their hand, hands, they played more video games and they bought more game, gaming consoles. So that early assumption was, was confirmed. It's certainly not a case for all industries, I wouldn't be, I would, would avoid that making that sweeping statement. But if you look at other things as well, like um, shopping groceries online, all the delivery services, food delivery, delivery services, everything, everything picked up significantly. So I would say the shift towards online and buying online was already happening, and COVID nineteen only exacerbated the uh, the trends. I would say. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see what snaps back into place after COVID, if there is a COVID right. after COVID. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's, that's another thing. Like a lot of this is, you know, the word of caution to, to anyone looking at the report and the figures. We, we don't know what we don't know. Uh, there's a lot of unknown. And I think that's, that's the understanding of a lot of people, a lot of professionals, uh, not just in our, in our industry, mm-hmm. that's, we don't know what's going to happen and whether these are trends that will be sustained throughout time. So, but I guess that's also material for us for future iterations of, of the study. So to, to see how that, how these, how these trends and habits hold up with all that has gone down since, since we started. Mm. Some of it will surely hold up. I mean, all, all the part about languages, about, you know, the, the core part of Project Underwear, um, that, mm-hmm. that people like to consume content or, or buy products in their own language, that, that for sure, I think, will continue. But all, all this stuff about shopping online or, or even the, the section about mobile, which we haven't discussed yet, um, I think a, lo- a lot of that stuff is going to be affected by COVID. But it wouldn't surprise mm-hmm. me if people aren't uh, going to be you know, going back to the shops when this is over. Like, I, I, I don't know. I think people like going to, the people who go to shops like going to shops. That's what I think. Yes, certainly. I, I think that's, that's an experience that cannot be replaced uh, by, at least for now, uh, until we have like really virtual reality or augmented reality or whatever you want to call it, like real options that allow us to do that. Um, and from our homes, uh, sh- shopping, Physically, it will still remain the biggest, uh, the biggest, uh, I think, driver for revenue. Yeah. Robert, you just mentioned uh, mobile. So let's talk about that for a second. What did you find in terms of what does the content, uh, the mobile content consumption look like, which is obviously mm-hmm. specifically interesting for, for companies? Where are we at? 
Right. So that was the the, the questions uh, about mobile. That was really going into more granular detail when it comes to online habits and what is the what is the vehicle of choice for people shopping online. And there, clearly, for now, mobile takes the takes the crown. So it's been replacing laptops. And and again, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, it depends on the on the product that we're buying, but with a lot of social media being also uh, present, more present on our mobile devices than on our desktop devices and mobile, uh, sorry, social media being being a factor in, in decision-making, most of the online experience is happening on a mobile device. And there are some disparities when you're looking at also, uh, let's say, how genders see it. So our finding was that women are more apt to, to to use their mobile devices than than uh, men do. Also, when looking at it through the prism of age, is that uh, the lower age groups, the younger ages, um, between 18 to 34 or 44, mm, they spend more time on their mobile phones or tablets than the than the older generations do. But I guess I, the, taking this a step further, the important thing for businesses to remember it's it's not about okay. Uh, really a binary choice or desktop, mobile, browser, or an app. It's more about giving users a choice and offering the wealth of options to, to users to, to pick from. Um, there was a significant part, about a third of our respondents who said that they switched devices. And that really tells us that in today's environment, offering choice is is a huge is a huge benefit to companies really mm-hmm. yeah that's uh and also just the age thing and the trend thing i mean if you're if you have people in that age group you know that you're selling to that are up to the age group of 44 i guess it would be there um i mean it, then you should definitely be doing doing mobile um but if you if you want to get younger people like even if even if you have a product that's for older people, um, you should be doing the mobile thing now, be, so that when the younger people are getting older into your age bracket, <laughs> that you're exactly. ready ready for them. Exactly, and and that's the whole reason we did some uh, some. That was a different project, but we looked into to to TikTok, right? That's a lot, a lot mm. of people have been talking about that, and 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 we really we found that the the users of TikTok are the buyers of tomorrow. Um, if you think about it, the demographic of TikTok is is uh, adolescents, really, um, between 14 to, to 18. Um, for the most part, they are using it today, but and engaging with with these brands who have a lot of a lot of marketing going on on that platform. Uh, and these are the people who will be in a position to buy five, ten years from now. So yeah, absolutely, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Did you, I'm sorry, but just to come back from that for a moment, did you look into it for this specific uh, research? Because um, you mentioned you, you looked into TikTok, so I'm just curious as in right, to, right, okay. um, what okay. in particular. Uh, that, was, that was a different research project. It, we, mm-hmm. have, we, we haven't been looking at uh, within Project Underwear uh, which platforms influence behavior and how. We, we, did have a, we did have a question whether social media is an influence when it comes to, to buying decisions and uh, whether people are following the latest trends and influencers. Um, but that, was, that wasn't platform specific or social media specific. Mm-hmm. 
you you mentioned uh, how important it is to give users a choice and one of the things mm. that uh, I found interesting in your report was you actually did have the question what happens when you give users a choice in language so mm -hmm. you know what happens? <laughs> well, it's surprisingly or not, uh, we all or most of us select our native language. I guess I'm the exception to the rule because I, I mostly read and engage with English stuff or in other languages, for example. Yeah, French, same but, for me. So, yeah, well, for, for us who are multi, multi, multilingual, I think that's, um, that is the case. But overall, uh, seven, seven users out of 10 will select their native language when they have choice. Mm -hmm. So that is that is a pretty convincing number, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, and it's and it's interesting too that th this is what what I was thinking when we were reviewing the report. Um, so that you have the Asian countries that are on the top side of preferring English content over their native, well, not over their native content, but more more people in Asia prefer English content, and that goes for Africa mm -hmm. too. And um, I, I guess I was wondering, um, do, you, do you think that's because there's just not enough high quality content available in their native languages or is it, is it something else? Right. And that's a very good question. I think it's a combination of factors, really. Um, when we're looking at it, when we're saying Asia, right, that's a, that's a huge mm. part of, of, of the globe. But it's when you're looking at individual countries, the, the disparities are, you know, are much more pronounced. Uh, overall, in Asia, what we found, yes, that people engage more with English content. But one of the reasons is that historically, localization and translating into, into some of those languages has not really been, been a huge thing. And I'm really thinking about languages such as Indonesian or, or mm -hmm. Thai or Vietnamese or or even the two dozen Indian languages, right? So there's not a whole lot of history of translating for those, even though that has been changing, of course, mm -hmm. over the past two decades, maybe. So uh, that, is, that is one thing that people don't have much content in their native language. So they are, they are perhaps more used to consuming content in English. Another thing we found, and when we, when we were looking at the, the individual countries and also talking to the in-country in country people we, we were working with, is that there's a, the, the history and, and the culture of, of the country has an influence on, on those choices as well. So if you're looking at India, and India is a really fascinating example in that sense, is that they have a history of English being the being the, the the language of instruction, right? They have a colonial history, and that applies for a number of other countries in Asia as well. That throughout their history, English was the, the accepted choice. So perhaps their tolerance towards English content is higher, and at the same time, it's also a symbol of status, right? And that is particularly true in India. So really, it's a combination of factors, I would say. And then the important bit here is, if you're looking at this data that we have in, in the report is, the regional data can only take you as far uh, as, it, as it can when, when you're okay in, in a situation when you want to be making business decisions based on this data. You should dig deeper and you should look really at the individual countries that matter to you that are among the the, the X number of target markets you are, you are planning to expand into. Don't think about regions, think about the individual markets. Right on. Go local, not global, right? Or regional. 
<laughs> go local, not regional. Right, and 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 I think that's a, that's that's been a recurring theme, I, at least in my experience. Maybe you know you have a similar one uh, when we're talking about when companies are thinking about global expansion, and then comes an LSP and says you got to do figs. So then you learn the that's the that's like the ABC of localization: do figs, do CCJK. You know, and we're sort of I find reformatted in that sense that, okay, when we are thinking about global expansion, we should definitely think about French, Italian, German, and Spanish. Then, okay, we want to take it to the next level. Then we do Chinese, uh, Japanese, Korean. And that makes sense, right? Because we're looking at, at huge markets with a lot of economic potential uh, and opportunity. But that has also kind of boxed us in into thinking about this is really a buckets that that we gotta throw our money into when we're making decisions about okay when where do we expand into next? Whereas it really should be more local, right? As you were saying that let's think about individual markets first, understand what is important to users in those countries um, before making decisions of okay where we need to do six languages because X Y Z reasons. Yeah, that's so. infinitely better. That makes so much more sense, right? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, even figs, I mean, the Italian market and the German market don't have all that much in common sometimes, you know? So, like, why, mm-hmm. you know, you you could totally do figs and have success in Italy and have a failure in Germany. And that mm-hmm. could be avoided if you just didn't think like that and, and just took each each country or each uh, locale on, on its own merits. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So what's the best solution then for, for companies in countries that in itself already have multiple official languages? Well, if, if they're already at a point where they, have, uh, where they have two dozen languages as part of their uh, multilingual support, I don't think I can make recommendations to them. They know, right? They, they have been tracking their data. They have their analytics, which should somehow... They should somehow be gathering data on on usage of, and preferences of users when it comes to language. But for companies that are only starting out, really, it's it's about understanding uh, what is important to them. Is it uh, growing the user base? Is it uh, monetizing their product? And or is it user conversion? So depending on what the objective is, and that should really be the step one, which your product, what is your objective? Because when you're looking at different markets, different different strategies apply. And, and if you're targeting user base expansion and you want to rapidly grow your user base, then in a country like Indonesia, which is very mobile driven, again, as, as a lot of Asian countries in Southeast Asia, then that's your target market. And that's where your effort should be. But if you want to monetize your app, for example, if we're talking about a product, then look at a country like the Netherlands, which doesn't have a huge population, but it does have more spending power comparatively, right? When with with Indonesia, people perhaps more inclined to spend more than than people in Indonesia would for the same thing. So understanding what are the the core markets, where where are you, where you want to be focusing your efforts, and then trying to tie that to okay, what is the what is the global strategy for your company? I think that's that's more key than saying. We need to do 10 languages because, uh, again, reasons, right? So at the same time, though, for companies who have already an established presence in a, in a number of countries, they should be 
asking tough questions and okay do we need all these languages are we getting the 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 best bang for our buck and i hope for for their sake that you know it's worth worth it for them but really it's cliche uh, territory it's not about the, the the quantity right but it's about the quality and really making it personal and really reaching the user in those countries mm-hmm. cliche territory is always okay on the, on the podcast <laughs> we, we have to distill we have to distill the the ideas okay so something that was on my mind earlier and then um i i have it written down here and i'm i'm wondering like a my my impression is that a lot of the the survey is really focused on um, really like B to C type stuff, you know. So we're, like we're talking about apps and users, or you know, people that are I don't know making cookies or shoes and shipping them all around the world, e-commerce stuff. Um, how how do you think some of this study applies to people in the B to B space? Um, so for example, WordB or a language service provider, or someone who makes a business software? How do you think it's different in the B2B space than it is for the B2C space for some of the stuff? Even though the Project Underwear is, is ultimately about the, it, it's about the users and how they, mm-hmm. how they engage with content, but there are, I think, and, and hope, really lessons to be learned, both for businesses creating the products and the services, so selling to the end users, but also I hope for LSPs that are frequently in a position of, we want to make a case towards our client that yes, they should buy Hindi localization from us. So, and to a certain extent, I think that the data here helps them as well, is that language matters to everyone and whether whether you're a B2C company or whether you're a B2B company, because it's it's ultimately the same people, right? So a Dutch uh, procurement uh, specialist dealing with a with a French uh, with a French counterpart or a French company who's offering their services to that Dutch company, he would still I think prefer that product to be in Dutch. Well, maybe that's a bad example because Dutch well, people have a high, high tolerance towards English. But I, I think I, it's I think uh, this, you might say that the procurement specialist and the other I, the other guy. I mean, um, business people wear underwear too, right? So uh, they, exactly, they, they they have the same same purpose. Exactly. Cool. Um, so if we think about uh, translation technology, how do you see that fit into? The findings of your report? Uh, that's a good question. And, and I think if I'm looking at it from this angle, it, it certainly has its place and it's not going anyway, anywhere anytime soon. So if, if technology providers can take any solace from this, it's that the, our takeaway is that language matters. And as long as language will matter, then there will be a need for facilitating uh, translation or recording or what have you. So for those who are insecure about their their place in the in the ecosystem, they shouldn't be right because they still have a key role to play in in the interactions between the company and the end user or between company and company. So they yeah they still have a vital role to play. They are the ones who, who in the end make it happen. Right on. Well, let's conclude with that then. Language matters. Let's make it happen. <laughs> that should go on a T-shirt. <laughs> Yeah, right. That, that's giving us ideas for, for some more swag. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. Well, yes, this is a good swag idea. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today, Gabriel. Uh, it was great talking to you and hearing all about your research findings of the project and the work. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time and uh, thank you for the invitation. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the International Bus Podcast brought to you by Wordbee. To learn more about our translation management system, check out our website at wordbee.com and be sure to subscribe to the podcast for release notifications. Until next time.